Hello and welcome to this unorthodoxy series on the Enneagram. Here we are at part 6. In the previous episode I gave an outline of the so-called gut or instinct types and in this episode I'm shifting my focus to the head types. While gut types all emerge from a particular relationship with anger, the head types emerge specifically from a very strong relationship with fear. While the gut types symbolize a loss of connection from truth, the head types represent a really profound experience of a loss of being held by the world. Right at the outset, though, I want to clarify that a shift of focus to the head doesn't suddenly mean that instinct or emotion are no longer in play. All enneotypes have a relationship with instinct, intellect, and emotion. Sure, this relationship is distorted when we are unhealthy, and even when we are healthy, we still will lean in one or another particular direction towards instinct, headiness, or emotion. Just take the link between the head and fear as just one example of how emotion and intellect are bound up. The head types all deal with fear in, in different ways because of their sense of being disconnected, not only from reality, but also from the world, feeling like somehow we are not part of the world, but are somehow in a way victims of it. Fives deal with this fear by fleeing into their inner intellectual worlds, especially into concerns about knowledge and competence. Sixes deal with this fear by seeking to be held by the world itself, by support systems of various kinds. And then sevens deal with fear, a little surprisingly in a way, by escaping into the world. In a way, sevens are afraid of their fear or the inner experience of their fear, and so they dive into the world of experience. While knowledge keeps fives from noticing their fear, exciting new possibilities keep sevens from recognizing their fear. And this means that of all the types, the head types, that is, sixes are the most likely to be perceived as fearful. Although, of course, fear is no less of a motivator for fives and sevens. By the way, isn't it amazing that fear is located in their head? This doesn't mean that gut and heart types don't feel afraid, of course, but that their fears are usually subsumed under other concerns and emotional responses. As I mentioned in an earlier episode in this series, each type comes with its disbenefits, but the benefits produced in response to fear are hardly very easy to overlook. It's my relationship with fear that gives me my intellectual take on the world, and I'm I'm really grateful for that. Let's get into the specifics of the head type, starting with Enneotype 6. It's often said by Enneagram teachers that around half the world is comprised of sixes. In other words, sixes are the most common Enneotype. This is, of course, totally unverifiable, and it may even be empirically false, but it points out a vital sense of how important loyalty is to the functioning of the world. In a way, even if half the world is not made up of sixes, somehow human collectives tend to function in very fearful sixish ways. This also suggests somewhat why so much political rhetoric relies on the dialectic of fear and redemption, as in, you would get lines like, you're afraid, more or less, <laughs> like this, you're afraid, so let this or that political leader or party save you. Hell and damnation theological rhetoric speaks very, very clearly into this fearful sixishness too. And unfortunately, it's it's kind of effective to set up 
God as both a tyrant to be feared and a savior to be trusted, a God who seems in alarming ways to reflect the conflictedness of most six types. Evangelicalism, at least in my view, is about as six-ish approach and approach to faith as you can get. It creates fear and a way to keep fear at bay, but it, it's this keeping fear at bay is dependent on fear itself. Sixes have this really powerful need to feel safe, to be secure, to push back against their primal sense of having lost the feeling that they are supported by the world. Like each type, sixes react against their central experience of loss, but the residue of that loss is almost always lurking in the background. Sixes, though, are probably the most ambivalent of the enneotypes because of the precise way that they push back against their primal sense of loss or of fallenness. Sixes look to the very world that they distrust for support, which means, as I've already hinted, that there's this constant pushing and pulling in the loyalty of the six. Loyalty usually wins the day, but not without a fight. This is why sixes are both profoundly reliable, hardworking, responsible, and trustworthy, and defensive, doubtful, testy, self-defeating, and anxious. They'll accomplish great things while simultaneously being totally stressed out or, in a really bad state, they'll sabotage any possibility of greatness for no apparent reason. They run to authority figures, but they assume on some level that their very authority figure, this authority figure that they're trusting, is going to let them down. The ambivalence in sixes, this indecisive questioning posture, gives rise to two quite different six types. There are phobic or fearful sixes and counterphobic or counterfearful sixes. While the ambivalence of the six is evident in both of these types, the fact that there are both phobic and counterphobic sixes means that each individual six enneotype will usually lean closer to one or the other. And this is going to look pretty different for each type. Phobic sixes are always on the lookout for danger, always a little nervous about how vulnerable they are, or at least how vulnerable they feel. They have this kind of apocalyptic dread and often a fairly strong sense of the presence of death. Sixes are, in a way, most likely to joke that we're all going to die or that we should just cheer up because things aren't quite as bad now as they're going to be. And then, of course, we'll notice that there's a lot of truth in the jest of sixes. Counterphobic sixes, on the other hand, are often so seemingly different from phobic sixes that they often get mistyped as eights on the Enneagram. But the motivation for both is still fear. One counterphobic six I know will argue with you at the drop of a hat, and his arguing is often quite biting and forceful. But when you pay attention, you can see that his aggression is not derived from anger but from fear, and it's not a very confident kind of confidence. The counterphobic six will fade into the background far more easily than a type eight. Counterphobic sixes can sound very dramatic and angry and irritable, but at some point in the conversation or the party, you may wonder where they went. The conditions of their assertiveness need to be quite safe, in a way, which is not really true of the assertiveness of eights. Still, as I've suggested, both phobic and counterphobic sixes have this remarkable sense of loyalty. 
In fact, I think the idiom loyal to a fault is a very six type thing. Sixes will tend to be loyal even when they've been really, really badly betrayed, even when friends don't have their best interests at heart. The stereotypical captain who goes down with the ship is displaying a very sixish quality. It's both beautiful and scary. Sixes most easily uh, stay in very unhealthy, abusive relationships instead of leaving. Or they'll stick around in companies where they are not treated right instead of looking for another place to work. And this is very, very costly for six types. And maybe if you're a six type, this is something that you should be paying attention to. It's not necessarily wrong, of course, to to defend your beliefs. But defending those beliefs when those beliefs or loyalties aren't really helping you, I think that's a pretty terribly hateful thing to do to yourself. It's really important to notice that the loyalty of sixes is not entirely the result of a virtuous cause. In fact, it's most often the result of a lack of virtue. Fear, which is what drives sixes, really means that sixes don't feel like they have the inner resources to handle any sort of shift in loyalties. This is highly relevant for fives and sevens too, obviously, but for sixes, this means that they're they're not generally very self-confident. Hence, they're leaning heavily on allies, beliefs, and structures. If no decent structure exists, well then, they will help to create and maintain some kind of structure. The fear of sixes, by the way, is rooted in indolence. I mentioned the notion of a soul child in the previous episode, so get back to that episode if you need some background info. As I said before, it it helps to listen to these Enneagram podcasts in, in order just so that you're not lost. But the gist of this idea of a soul child can be exemplified by how a six relates to its soul child. The gist of it is that the six six's soul child, uh, the repressed part of the six's personality, is a nine, a very lazy little nine that wants nothing more than to stay in bed all day, eat pancakes, and watch movies. That nine-ish quality seeps through in the six's self-abnegation. But mostly, because they're fearful of this lazy aspect of nine-ishness, sixes repress this lazy little nine and set out to make sure that laziness does not overtake them. If they're not busy, sixes will fear that their lives will go down the tubes. So, sixes are often totally rubbish at resting properly. Although not nearly as rubbish as threes and eights, the notion of a Sabbath is inherently worrying to six types. Why would you take a day off, I guess? They would be thinking, is that really a good idea? So for unhealthy sixes, even an off day needs to be filled with activity. The thing is, rest tells us something. That we are held not by the world, but by the being with a capital B. The being that holds the world and the entire universe into existence. The world is terribly unpredictable and terribly unstable, but that's not supposed to be the source of anyone's existence or stability. That the world is not the thing that we should be trusting in a way. And it's really, in a a profoundly rich sense, love that holds existence into existence. And this love really is evident even in the midst of shock and change. This is very tricky to explain apart from some kind of mystical experience, so maybe one way for sixes to strive for integrating their soul child is to learn to rest, to meditate, to find wholeness in what 
we might call God or being or essential truth or transcendence. If you don't believe that such transcendence is possible, well, then basically you're screwed. And I guess all that I could do uh, is wish you luck. So, good luck. By the way, um, the overexertion of sixes is reminiscent of their tendency to disintegrate to point three on the Enneagram. Point three, then, is a source of false consolation for sixes. You could call this false consolation pseudo-activity rather than just activity. It seeks to counteract fear by means of some kind of connection with persona. And the truth of this is that pseudo-activity just confirms its own illusory status. Just like all of us, but with a dash of special attention, sixes need to know that doing is not being. And so, that is sixes in a nutshell. Now, on to fives. I relate particularly well to this type because... I am a five, so uh, go figure. Fives are referred to commonly as observers because of their powerful need to perceive. This is not just regular perceiving, mind you. It's not just about seeing, but about seeing through. Fives want to get behind the scenes all the time. It's never really enough to see only the surface. Which means that fives find small talk generally pretty much impossible. Fives respond to fear by escaping from the world into their heads, as I've said, though this escape into the head is a tool used to distance the five from his or her fear. So fives don't come across as fearful. They come across, at least usually, as detached. Fives typify that cliche about introverts that says that they'd rather stay home and read a book than be out at a party. Of course, other introverts and other enneotypes may do the same, but fives, well, they they make an art out of avoiding crowds, or if they're in a crowd, they try and avoid being noticed. But fives are not called observers for nothing. When they are out there in the world, in crowds, they observe. That famous line from that famous five fictional character, Sherlock Holmes, you see but you do not observe, is pretty much something that fives live by. Fives have a tendency to be constantly looking at the world as if they're not part of it. In this sense, fives are like twos and eights. They see themselves as being above the world. Richard Raw jokes that they're a bit like barn owls, somewhat faded into the background observing at a distance, and you may not even notice that they're watching. The five sin is avarice or greed, also um, called ego stinginess. This is not a great vice to have, but I guess any vice is not a good one to have. This is not greed for possessions, by the way, generally, but a greed for understanding or competence, a greed in a way for self-reliance, whatever that means. It doesn't mean that fives are all intellectuals or even that all fives are clever. The point is simply that fives want to feel that they know how the world they're in works so that they can navigate it without getting too involved and without setting up any kind of danger for themselves. If you're a magician looking for a volunteer, the fives in the room are going to be the first ones to look for an exit, which is exactly what the magician doesn't want. Some Enneagram teachers say that fives are the only type who can be truly objective. And as a five type and as a philosopher, I take issue with this. I think fives may generally be fairly good at removing emotionality from their decision making, Although fives with four wings like me may find this trickier than, say, fives with a six wing. I'll get to wings in a later episode. I think it's probably better to say 
that well-attuned fives make their seemingly objective decisions only through a very strong awareness of different subjectivities. There's generally a detailed and rigorous weighing up of perspectives that takes place in the fives processing of the world. Fives, as I mentioned previously, tend to feel that conclusions are provisional and perspectivism, which is a stance that sees from multiple viewpoints, is not uncommon for fives. But rather surprisingly, all the know-how and competence that fives end up swimming in is a direct response to and repression of a vengeful little eight soul child, which fives repress because its anger is really unacceptable and therefore unsupported. Also, the strong, lustful, assertive bodily energy of that little eight soul child can be tough for fives to integrate into their intellectual worlds. But here's where I want to point out something amazing. Just as ones, knowing instinctively that they're moralists, will naturally seek to remedy their moralism, perhaps in the form of some kind of doctrine of grace, so fives will naturally work towards trying to better integrate their embodied existence. The danger of this, of course, is that fives will do this in a very five-ish type of way, and they may end up just reframing their embodiedness in terms of some other kind of understanding. Still, fives do tend to come around to the importance of feeling and resting into the potency of their latent eight energy. Three five-type philosophers can be named as examples of of this and putting this into some sort of reflection, Hegel, Heidegger, and Maurice Merleau-Ponty. All three of these, in different ways, spent an awful lot of time grappling with phenomenology, which is the study of human experience, embodied experience. A lot of existentialists, philosophers grappling with existence itself, were fives, not Kierkegaard, of course. He was a four, and a rather tormented four at that. But Nietzsche, Heidegger, and Sartre were fives, as was the existentialist author Franz Kafka. So fives need to integrate their angry little soul child and start to develop and live from that astonishing eight energy, which is concerned very much with justice and rightness. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a wonderful example of how this works out. Bonhoeffer was a five who lived in Germany during the Second World War, and he came to see that sitting back in the comfort of his home was not going to cut the mustard. So, with a very strong sense of ethical concerns and the tricky moral ground that he was standing on, he became a part of a plot to assassinate Hitler. While the plan failed, I think it's a really powerful example of a five learning to set up a a really strong boundary in the name of justice. Knowing this uh, approach, this idea that boundary setting is important, has helped me as a five to have a better sense of how to set up my own boundaries and also how to fight in practice and not just in theory for what is right. Fives disintegrate to seven. In other words, though remaining in their heads, they start looking at the world as this kind of ironic game that they can play without really taking it seriously. And they get distracted easily. (laughs) This is something, there's maybe something good in this. In fact, there's something about every Enneotype's point of disintegration that is, I think, necessary and good in its own way. But it can tend to perpetuate the five's desire to disengage. 
There are a few things then that fives need to be able to grow. Intentional embodied activity is vital. In fact, surprisingly, any kind of sense of transcendence will be felt in the body alone, and so the body needs to be lived in. The prayer time of fives should, generally speaking, not involve the intellect. Meditation and mindfulness help immensely, but prayer with conscious cognitive processes is easily just an extension of the usual five-ish type of egotism. But above all things, or at least together with them, engaging with emotion is really important for fives. It's really okay to feel, and it's especially okay to feel anger and a sense of a need for justice. It's okay to embrace emotion as an essential part of our human experience. Some fives really struggle to embrace their forewing, and yet this is going to be pretty much the only thing that saves fives from their own self-made prison of detachment. It is a tragedy to be seen, maybe, which is, I think, something that a lot, a lot of fives struggle with. But the greater tragedy is not to be found at all. Fives need to counteract their knowledge-hoarding instinct by giving, by being generous-hearted and generous-spirited. This is a risk, of course, but it is a risk worth taking, given, of course, that all the correct parameters are in place. I started this podcast, in fact, out of a recognition that it was not good enough for me to simply read and know a lot of stuff. I needed to share what I learned, no matter how provisional and imperfect it may seem to me, because I feel like this is one of the ways, maybe a very small way that I can give a little bit to the world. So there you go, that's fives. Now on to sevens. Sevens are the ego planners of the world. Their central need is to be happy, which means that they live almost in a perpetual avoidance of pain or discomfort. When things start to get hard, it takes nearly everything of an Enya type seven to not just find another option or another alternative. The type seven is pretty heady, mind you, but often I've discovered in a fairly shallow sort of way. The rationalizations of sevens can be epic. They can explain their decisions in remarkable ways, always defending how brilliant it is that they're moving on to the next thing. But this is just, it's just rationalization and it's not necessarily that smart. It's just a way to avoid the darker side of life. Sevens defend themselves often through fantasies, real or not, and exploring possibilities, reasonable or not. And they hate being boxed in, which means that even relationships with people that they really love may need to feel like they have to have an escape hatch. At this point, by the way, a number of sevens out there are probably getting a bit twitchy and thinking that maybe there's something out there that's better to listen to than this podcast. Some sevens switched this off a while ago. And if you're still here and you are a seven, you are clearly either very integrated or you found a way to rationalize that what I've just said doesn't apply to you. Sevens want fun, stimulating experiences, and obviously as little discomfort as possible, preferably no discomfort. I mean, obviously, all of us can relate to this desire for joy and delight, and all of us find pain terrible, but it's not our main modus operandi. It's not, at least not in the way that it is for sevens. We all need this energy in the world, by the way, very desperately, I think. Sevens 
have the superpower of positive thinking, which means that they can be brilliant as friends and partners and kids and parents. They can lift the mood of a room in profoundly powerful ways. But of course, unfortunately, life really isn't peachy all of the time. And when things do get tricky, sevens are the most prone of all the types to find ways to avoid confronting their troubles. I mentioned that nines are also pretty optimistic, but that their optimism tends to be a bit fuzzy. Sevens are optimistic, but with a kind of brilliant clarity and also a profound ability to be distracted by the next fascinating thing. The cost of this kind of, I don't know, ADHD clarity then is a common failure of imagination on matters of genuine depth. Sevens are emblematic of the typical monkey mind that Buddhists refer to when teaching meditation. The seven will rapidly switch from one line of thinking to another or synthesize thoughts that aren't necessarily related, a profoundly creative activity. Sevens tend to reverse the the tendency of twos and nines to focus attention of others. Sevens tend to focus attention on their own needs and their own thoughts, basically on, on the idea of what the world can do for them. So this is an egotism that really needs to be counted in very deliberate ways. This self-focus is actually the residue of a very miserly withholding and withdrawing little five-ish soul child. There's an emptiness in that little five soul child that is avoided. Sevens want to have all the fun and this may be great for a bit but it's really going to be at the expense of others around them and so this needs to be desperately acknowledged and loved and transcended by sevens, this little soul child. Sevens need to learn that their repressed five side is precisely the thing that they are running from and also that it is precisely in going down the wrong road that joy will be deepened. It's not going to be a shallow joy then, but a very deep joy accompanied by some seriously cool wisdom. Because sevens are often adventurers, they can easily combine their vast experiences with some very deep five insights to produce a powerfully balanced and deep sense of the whole. Sevens disintegrate to one, meaning that they tend to adopt the negative aspects of one-ishness, fussing a great deal too much with planning and perfectionism, but always in the service of their own intention to avoid pain. They can be pretty judgmental and cynical and hypercritical uh, when they disintegrate because they feel that others are trying to rain on their parade. And so, For the sake of growth, sevens will need to learn to stay in one place, both in body and in mind and in spirit, despite the ants in their pants. If you are a seven, keep in mind that pain does not spell the end of pleasure, and that sorrow does not spell the end of joy. Happiness will still get the last word, but not without a bit of struggle. In fact, true happiness includes a bit of darkness too, the crack in everything is precisely how the light gets in. Which is nice to know for all of us, I think. And so it is with that thought that I will stop talking about the head types. In the next episode, before speaking again to some of the more general aspects of the Enneagram, I'm going to talk about the heart types, the twos, threes, and fours. Since personal identity is a bigger issue for these types than for any of the other Enneatypes, I promise I'm going to try my best to tread lightly. Until then, cheers everyone.